Today's scripture reading is in the book of Exodus, and I invite you to follow along with me on the screens behind me. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribes and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his good, clear, and sufficient word. Well, the year was 1931, and a man called Nicholas Murray Butler, the president of Columbia University, delivered a speech at another university, the University of California. And in that speech, Butler proposed that human beings can basically be divided up into three separate groups. There are, first, the few who make things happen, the many more who watch things happen, and the overwhelming majority who take no notion to what happens in the first place. Thinking about Butler's words, it's fair to say that all of us see something virtuous about being a person who makes things happen, somebody who can get things done, to be the kind of person who is willing and able to take positive action on behalf of their family, their children, their parents, their church family, their community, their job, and so on. Similarly, I regularly chat with friends, with other parents, about the hopes and aspirations that we have for our kids, and it's amazing to me how oftentimes that's distilled down into a few really simple things. First, we hope and pray that they know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we pray that they marry a Christian spouse if God has the gift of marriage for them. And third, we want them to be productive members of our society. My basement will not be your home forever. Here's the point. There's a sense that we all want to be people who make things happen, right? We want to be useful. We want to make a difference in the world. And for Christians, we tend to define this using the spiritual language of service, of faithful service to God. As Christians, that's our aim, to be faithful servants to God. We want to be useful to him and to his purposes. We want to love our neighbors. We want to, as Colossians 3 says, to do whatever it is that we do, whether in word or in deed. We want to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. But it's very important that we flesh that out a bit. For example, what's the difference between being an effective, faithful servant for God and simply having a kind of generic personal ambition? What do positive action and productivity look like in God's economy? Where do we start? How are we sustained? It's with those questions in mind that I'll invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. It's a passage of scripture that provides 
Answers that we may not find in the leadership or productivity section at Barnes & Noble, but they are nevertheless of incredible value and practical help. Nehemiah chapter 1, you can find it on page 398 of your pew Bible if you need one. If not, open your Bible to the middle and turn left and you will find it. If you get to Genesis, you went too far. Nehemiah 1 and verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Verse 5, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. The theme of service to God or being the servant of God is clearly an emphasis here in this amazing prayer. Nehemiah mentions the word service or servant five times in just the brief prayer. But before we dive into that prayer and understanding what faithful service really looks like, it's important that we immerse ourselves into the context of this passage, the setting, the characters. So here we have it. A little over a hundred years before Nehemiah lived, God brought judgment on his people for their rebellion against him. And they were taken captive by the Babylonians. The city of God was destroyed. And as decades and new ruling kingdoms eventually passed, God's people found themselves under the rule of the Persians. Lindsay helpfully read some of that for us earlier, that the nation of Israel under the Persian king Cyrus would go home. They would return. They would attempt to rebuild their city and rediscover and rekindle all the covenant promises within. But as geopolitics tend to go, things got complicated, to say the least. There were some other 
self-interested parties who opposed the rebuilding efforts, and through a series of accusations, bribery, and even physical force, the opposition were successful and convinced the reigning king, King Artaxerxes, to pull the plug, to stop supporting the project so that he might reflect on his own personal interests. Insert Nehemiah. Nehemiah was very likely born in Persia. He's later referred to as a cupbearer of the king. So you might think of him as an ancient sommelier with a few more job hazards, I would guess. And as cupbearer, though, what's really important is that Nehemiah would have held a position of great privilege and great honor and great importance. Life in the palace, think invitations to all the red carpet events, the black tie events, a close relationship of trust with the king, and less the threat of consuming a poisoned Pinot Noir, his life was pretty good. This is the setting, and these are the characters. And so in the month of Kislev, we see in verse 3, That news comes to Nehemiah. He wants to know how the rebuilding effort is going. And he is told that the remnant is in great trouble and shame. The wall is broken down again and its gates destroyed by fire. How will the cupbearer respond? Will he be one of the few who makes things happen? Or will he be one of the one who simply watches as things happen? Or will he take no notice of the things happening around him at all? As we know from the rest of the book, Nehemiah does, in fact, prove himself to be a man of action, a faithful servant of God. But it's the way that he responds where we find a surprise. He responds in prayer, in God-honoring, humble, dependent prayer. And we'll look at two aspects of this prayer. First of all, Uh, Nehemiah's posture or disposition of prayer, and then the content of his prayer. Very simple outline today. First, the posture of his prayer. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And this response, in relationship to looking for leadership and action, I think is really interesting. Right? We're talking about leadership, action, right? We're talking about compelling vision and strategic planning and inspiring speeches and really clever campaign ads. But Nehemiah prioritizes the work of prayer. And his first response to the devastation is not to look inward for some kind of personal strength. It's not to look outward for an enemy to fight or someone to blame, but rather he looks upward to God in humble dependent prayer. He weeps, the text tells us. He's he's mourning as though someone had died. And this shows us just how much he's invested into this, just how deeply concerned he is with the health and the well-being of the people of God. And this wasn't simply because a building project had ceased. He knew the stakes. He knew what a rebuilt temple and a rebuilt wall represented. He knew the covenant implications. So this man was all in Mind, heart, body, all in. And as we think about the weeping and wailing and mourning and praying of Nehemiah, I wonder how this compares to the way that we view and prioritize the well-being of God's people. Is that the level of intensity that you feel 
and express toward the people in this room, toward our own church family? Are we leveraging our time and resources, our emotional energy, our relational care for the good and growth and renown of God's name and the care of God's people? As we think about this posture of prayer, it's also really convicting. It was for me to think about this as the first reflex when the need for action arises. I'm a doer. I take some sick pleasure in running into problems and trying to fix them. Maybe you are too. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But boy, a passage like this reminds me that our best first action when a need arises, when a crisis arises, is to turn to God in a humble disposition of prayer. So this is the posture. And now we get into the substance, which we might break down into a handful of sections, beginning first with the importance of esteeming God properly, esteeming, honoring, worshiping God properly. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He's worshiping. He's esteeming the the character and the works of God. I love his address. He addresses God as Yahweh, the God of heaven. Friends, this is the God who sovereignly rules and reigns over all. All. He commands the armies of heaven. He hung the planets in their place. He administers the seasons. He sets the boundaries of the great oceans. God, in his sovereignty, governs the entire universe according to his good pleasure and his good purpose. I also love the language that he uses to esteem God as great and awesome, rooted in his divine essence and attributes as well as his actions. He is the God who keeps covenant, which means he's the God who keeps his promises. He and he alone is truly awesome. (laughs) When my kids were little and still our youngest to a different degree, I'd find that they were awed and amazed by some of the simplest things. I mean, you know this, this thumb trick that like every dad in the history of dad does with their kid? You know, you get it here and you wiggle it and you sell it real good and then you slowly pull it away and, dad, that's awesome. That's amazing. How did you, how did you do that? Or, you know, we buy a new Lego set and you see the picture on the box and you think there's no way we're going to get there. And so you go one piece at a time and I've almost lost my mind because I stepped on the one piece and the other piece fell under the couch. And then finally we got it all together and they stand back, oh, that dad. That is sweet. That is awesome. And of course, that's endearing and cute. But when we think about the way that we as Christians are awed by lesser things, this takes on a whole new dimension. All too often, I fear, and all too easily, our attention and our worship are captured by puny idols like money, or social recognition, or youth, sports. Listen, these things can be good. These things can be blessings from God. But I think what Nehemiah 1 is calling us to remember that there's only one who is truly awesome. (laughs) 
May we see these other gifts from God in their proper place and esteem God as the one who is truly awesome. May God increase our vision for him this morning as the only great and awesome Lord of heaven and earth. This is where the prayer begins. And it continues with the honest confession of sin, confessing sin with full transparency and honesty. Verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, confessing the sins of the people. Even I and my father's house have sinned. So Nehemiah is taking both personal culpability before God and what we might call common sins among the people of God corporately. So you have failure and transgression really across the board here. Verse 7 gives us a little more information, a little more specific. He says, we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments that you commanded your servant Moses. God in his kindness was super clear about his expectations for his people. He revealed that to them in his inspired word. He graciously gave them the law of Moses so they could know for sure how to live in a right relationship with God. And yet verse 7 serves as a, a really a tragic summary of all of Israel's history. Remember, we're at the end of the Old Testament, at least historically. And so Nehemiah is looking back across the decades and across the years, and despite God's ongoing deliverance, patience, calls for repentance, his people have rebelled against him. My brother, Pastor Dan, gave a great exposition of Daniel 9 a couple of weeks ago as it relates to the importance of confessional prayer, so we won't linger here too much, but I did find it interesting when my monthly edition of Tabletop Magazine arrived this week. It's a publication of Ligonier Ministry. I highly commend it to you. Uh, The cover says, Commonly Tolerated Sins. I open the cover slowly, hesitantly, like, oh, Lord, I need this, but I don't want to do this, and I finally open the cover. Let me read you a few. Ingratitude, impatience, envy, marital apathy, neglecting evangelism, judgmentalism, and several others. I could go on, but I will spare you. I wonder what you would say are the most commonly tolerated sins in your life. We all have them. I wonder if we might conduct an examination this week to bring them into the light, to lament them, to put them to death, and and to confess them to God, knowing the good news that in Christ, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So Nehemiah begins by esteeming God properly. He transitions by confessing sin honestly. And next, he appeals to God's promises hopefully. He makes an appeal to God's promises with a sense of hope and a sense of anticipation. Look at verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. God kept his word in that regard. But, verse 9, if you return to me and keep my commandments, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and make my name dwell there. This is the hope of restoration. 
Nehemiah is not calling God to remember his promises because he has somehow forgotten them. It was a forgetful Monday morning. No, he is making an appeal to them. He's asking God to be gracious again if his people would but return to him in joyful obedience and faith. This part of the prayer, there's a lot of references that he uses from the book of Deuteronomy. And he basically quotes Moses from Moses' prayer in Deuteronomy 9 when he said, For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and outstretched arm. And so this is what we might call intercessory prayer. That is, making an appeal to God and to his promises on behalf of others. So this is an others-centered prayer. It began with very God-centered prayer. It's also an others-centered prayer. And I love the way that Derek Kidner, who's an Old Testament scholar, says that Nehemiah is asking that God would stand by his own and by the work he had so strenuously begun. I think a really practical takeaway as it relates to this section of the prayer is this. If we want to make an appeal to God's promises, then we need to know God's promises. Nehemiah is basically praying his way through Deuteronomy here. And it's a wonderful model for us. Of course, we need to use interpretive care as it relates to applying the promises of God across the span of redemption history. But if we want to make an appeal to God's word, then we need to know God's word, to know it and love it, to meditate on it. If you feel like you are stuck in your prayer life right now, let me just encourage you, bring your Bible to your prayer closet the next time you go. And soak in the expression of Psalm 119, which says, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives life. So after proper worship, confession, and an appeal to God's promises, Nehemiah lands the plane by petitioning God in sheer desperation, petitioning God, crying out for help. We see it in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear you. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Three requests from Nehemiah in verse 11. Attentiveness to his prayer, success, and mercy in the sight of, at this point, an unnamed man. If you're not familiar with prayers of petition, they are quite simply prayers that ask God for help. God, please help. Please intervene. They are asking him to to step into a situation that would otherwise be impossible for you to endure if he would not. Prayers of petition are wonderful for so many reasons. One of them is that They put us in our proper place, the place of need, and they put God in his proper place, the place of great supply. Prayers of petition lay out our priorities, not only for ourselves, but for the needs of others around us. What's a little surprising to me, at least in verse 11, is that Nehemiah asked God for success. Now, in some churches, I'd say even among some of our conservative evangelical circles, the word success can feel like a bad word. But not here in Nehemiah 1. God's servant asks for success. And of course, he's not talking about personal advancement 
And here's the key, or additional comforts in this life. This is a God-centered prayer, an other-centered prayer, a prayer that's focusing on the renown of God's name and the health of his people. And so he says, please give success to your servant. I wonder, in today's context and culture, how you might define success. And I wonder if we might be so bold to pray prayers that would actually remove some of the comforts of this life for the good and the purpose of God's church and God's kingdom. Nehemiah was about to endeavor into something that was very difficult, and yet he continued along. Success. Then we have this request for mercy in the sight of this man, and as we read through the text and into chapter 2, we find that he's talking about King Artaxerxes. And this is important to think about because God, to some degree, has already given Nehemiah favor and mercy with the king. His role as cupbearer would prove that out. But this is another level. This is a different level of success and mercy. Why? Because, remember the, the, the context, Nehemiah is planning to persuade the very king who stopped the rebuilding of the walls to restart the process again. Same king, King Artaxerxes. It's no wonder that when the conversation finally comes in chapter 2, you can read it later. He goes, and I was very afraid. Of course he was. Of course he was. And yet he still prays with boldness and willingness for God to use him according to his divine plan and purpose. And it's in that ask, in that posture that we see that faithful service to God is driven by ongoing prayerful dependence upon God. That's the essence of what this text is teaching us. Being a person of action, being a person who makes things happen in God's economy, faithful service to God is driven by an ongoing prayerful dependence on God. Many of you are likely familiar with the name Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, he was a 19th century good Baptist pastor, good Reformed Baptist. His ministry touched countless numbers of people, including the thousands and thousands who met every week at Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London. This place was quite a sight to behold. One day, a group of young ministers came in to visit Spurgeon on a Sunday, and after showing them the massive, impressive worship center or sanctuary, he asked the guests, do you want to also see my boiler room? You ever been to a boiler room? Imagine that, that basement that smells kind of funny and it creeps out your kids and it makes really funny noises that are scary. That's, like, that's the boiler room. So they weren't particularly inclined to go see the boiler room, but Spurgeon took them anyway. And as they walked down the stairs and entered the boiler room, to their surprise, they found over 100 people in intercessory prayer. Spurgeon said with a bit of a wry smile, welcome to the boiler room. <laughs> he and his people understood something very important. That faithful service to God is driven by ongoing prayerful dependence upon God. Ongoing. And that word ongoing is super important for Nehemiah and for us. Because this prayer, and others like it, went on for days and even weeks and even months. 
We read that earlier from verse 4. He continued fasting for days, mourning for days. But if we look at chapter 2 in verse 1, it begins in the month of Nisan. The gap, interestingly, between the month of Kislev and the month of Nisan is about 16 weeks or just over 100 days. That's how long Nehemiah was going. And you can almost see him going through his palace duties, serving wine, taking care of guests, all the while praying and praying and praying in the quiet of his mornings, in the quiet of his evenings, praying, praying, praying. And in his providential timing, God did answer the prayer. He gave Nehemiah the success and the mercy with the king he asked for. Nehemiah would eventually leave the palace with all his comforts and return to Jerusalem to serve the living God by rebuilding the wall. And for what it's worth, not for nothing, chapter 6, verse 6, tells us that it took 52 days to rebuild the wall. This means that Nehemiah spent twice the amount of time he did in prayer than he did actually rebuilding the structure. That's not like a weird Bible code thing. As much as it tells us the importance, the priority of prayer and its connection to actually getting things done for God. But as we conclude, it's important to point out that Nehemiah 1 is not simply a call to pray, although it is that. It's also a call to the gospel. Nehemiah chapter 1 was written to the point to point us to the one who left not just a human palace but the courts of heaven to serve the living God. Nehemiah 1 points us to the one who taught us to pray, very much like the prayer of Nehemiah. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Forgive us our sins. Give us this day our daily bread. This text points us to the one who stood over the same Jerusalem and wept not over a ruined city, but a ruined people. Nehemiah 1 points us to the one who went to the Garden of Gethsemane to the point of near death, laboring, laboring under the work he was about to do on his people's behalf, and yet he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Nehemiah, the pain of the, and the beauty of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus Christ did not receive favor and mercy in the way that Nehemiah did. Instead, Jesus received the wrath of God in our place for our sins, but in so doing, and this is the good news, and in rising from the dead three days later, Jesus in turn offers us the favor and the mercy from God, the great king of the universe that we so deeply need. What's more is that in the gospel, Jesus also provides us full access to God, access to him in prayer whenever we need, whenever we desire be encouraged by Hebrews chapter 4. It says, since, we have such a, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you see? It's because of Jesus that we can receive favor and mercy from God by faith. And it's because of Jesus that we are invited to and empowered to draw near to God's throne of grace so that we can continue to live and serve 
in this ongoing prayerful dependence upon our great and awesome God. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, maker of heaven and earth, sustainer of all the universe, supplier of breath and life for all things, we worship you today. And we pray that you will forgive us for all the times when we have not worshiped you rightly. We thank you for the prayer of your servant, Nehemiah. Thank you for what it models for us, but thank you for the greater reality that it points us to the desperation and need that we have to be forgiven, the need for mercy from the king. Thank you for providing that mercy through the work of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is great and he is awesome. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.